Well, just like we did last night, I know, again, this is a different crowd. I'm going to tell you this right now. This is the most interesting speaking experience that I ever have at any place in my life, okay? Um, and I, I love the challenge of it, but it is really different. I mean, like, it's a different look every night, different people, age range from, like, 8 to 80, uh, right? People that are completely all across the spectrum have no idea what any of your backgrounds are or there's a bunch of different denominations represented, and it's a really bizarre mix, isn't it? So thank you for being part of that and, and yeah, challenging me. Y'all love Jesus? Can we assume that? Okay, you probably wouldn't come to Hume if you didn't. But just like we did last night, does anybody have anything that they want to say that they reflected on or a question that popped up or anything? We talked, remember, we were talking about how to be subversive by taking our identity from Christ's death and his resurrection and choosing to believe what he says is true about us instead of what the world is telling us is true about us. Constructing an identity based on what he says instead of what the world says. That was, the, that was it in a nutshell last night. So does anybody have anything at all? <clears throat> and again, if you don't, that's fine. I just, I just want to make sure that we have opportunity to say anything if you have anything you want to say. that you were talking about where we're in Christ now and we have these, this status, we have these expectations of living, we also have this expectation of God's power working in us in the midst of that. Um, yeah, and you had said that last night, Charlie. We had a good discussion afterwards. And, and Charlie just said, we, we don't have to try to do this on our own. That's what I'm just hearing you say right now, right? That it's, it's actually the Holy Spirit, which we're not doing extensive talk on the Holy Spirit, but we actually have God's power in us to live out the things that he says are true about us. It's not just a matter of trying to force it out of ourselves along the way. So I thought that was a good insight. So thank you for that. Yeah. So that kind of keeps going back and thinking about gratitude. Yeah, good. So do I. Remember we said that's like the foundation. It's what gives birth to all the rest of it. Yeah, it's good. Okay, anything else? Some of you have even switched sides of the room that you're sitting on just to mess with me. Jeremy, what are you doing over there tonight? It's just it's the, the, the mom camp is back, and they're over on this side. Yeah, mom camp is here tonight. So... It's part women's conference. It's part, 
I don't know. We're just here to do the Bible, right? All right, so to Art's point, the last time we're going to get in the Word, and then tomorrow we'll have Dr. Eric Tonis here, and we'll, we'll kick things around with him. Uh, okay, so there was a guy named Charles Taylor, and he wrote a book in 2007 called The Secular Age. Okay, super important book. And what he said, he was trying to talk about the times that we live in right now and how difficult it is to cultivate a spiritual life, okay? And he said there was this pre-modern time, and just see if you can follow this, like before the 1500s, everything that happened before the 1500s would be considered the pre-modern time. And he said in that time, it was impossible not to believe in gods, God. Okay? There was an age of enchantment, like everybody believed in some kind of a God. People prayed for rain, and they prayed for fertility, and they prayed for um, victories in war. And there, it was a time of enchantment, like the, the air was infused with a belief in different gods. Okay? So you had, it was impossible not to believe in God. And then you got to the modern time, which is like the Enlightenment time and where the age of reason start, started to take hold and science started to become a god. And in the modern times, it started to become possible not to believe in God for the first time. That was introduced into the societies and the way that people think. Now we live in what would be called a postmodern time where for the first time it's become impossible to believe in God. That the waters that we swim in, the cynicism, the materialism that we talked about, where there no longer is a spiritual life that gets talked about. And again, I know you're, you're church people and you're thinking, well, we believe in God. I know, but you live in a society, we live in a society where that is a complete and total outlier approach to life. Because now the going way of doing life is that you there is no God to believe in, and you just have to make life up for yourself. You have to construct a life. So it's that much more difficult to have a life of faith living in, a cultural, in cultural waters that are saying it's impossible to believe in God. Okay? And so I told you also on the first night that one of my commitments and one of the things that motivates me is to try to figure out how to be a Christ follower and to continue to walk with God every day living in a secular culture that's going completely in the opposite direction of that. Remember that? And so that our goal, really, well, I think what, what the Bible is calling us to do as Jesus followers is to subvert the cultural moment that we live in. It's not to become one with it or to try to figure out how to get aligned with it, but it's actually to almost undermine it and go in the opposite direction. That's what a life in Jesus, which is true, in, really in any age that you live in, but especially in the one that we live in now. So in working with college students, and I even heard, I heard Eric say this to the high schoolers the other night, we live in a time where really you can believe anything you want. Believe anything you want, as long as you don't take it too seriously. And if you want to believe in God, like we said, we don't think there is any God or any spiritual world, but if you want to believe in a God, that's fine. Just don't take it too seriously or have it mean anything in terms of the way you live your life. And certainly don't try to put that on me or to project that onto anyone else. Don't take your beliefs too seriously. And in fact, it's, again, I don't know, maybe you're not feeling this if you're an older person in here, but I know my kids and if you're in high school or college, like it's like really uncool 
to, to take anything too seriously, especially if you go to a secular school. You don't want to be too passionate about, about anything. So I need examples of people who lived in cultures like that, who lived in very secular, anti-God cultures, or who at least were against the Christian God. I need examples of men and women who have done that well. I think we all do. We need to see people who were able to make choices in the midst of living in that really stressful place where most people are not going to believe what you believe. And in fact, what you believe goes against what everybody else believes and do it well. Daniel is one of those guys. I think God left us the story of Daniel for a whole bunch of different reasons. He's a significant character just in the flow of salvation history, okay, and what God is doing in the universe to bring people back to himself. But I think we also can learn a whole lot about how do you live in a secular culture? How do you not live in a secular culture if you're trying to follow God? Okay, so if you've got a Bible tonight, open up to Daniel chapter 1. And we're going to look at what through the years has really been one of my favorite passages ever since I was in college. And I first had people teach this to me. Daniel's been held up as sort of a model for me. Okay. Is there any way to turn these lights on back here, Josh? Okay. No problem. Thank you. All right. So we're going to go into Daniel 1, and we're just going to walk through this chapter and stop in different points along the way, okay? So this first section are just circumstances, the circumstances that he's facing, and we're going to see that it's already a huge chance to compromise, okay? A huge chance to compromise. It says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, just like Art was talking about in his trivia question, Nebuchadnezzar, who was king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. He took it over. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he, Nebuchadnezzar, brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Okay, so you have this scene where it's just a takeover. It's a hostile takeover where Nebuchadnezzar is coming in. They've invaded uh, Jerusalem, and they're taking it over. And obviously, that's just bad on the surface, but if you're a Jewish person and you're a Jewish person who believes in God, this is like really, really unsettling because you have been expecting that at some point a Messiah was going to come, that God himself was going to come back and take up residence in Jerusalem, in the temple. That has been a hope that you've had. It's something that you've been leaning into in your beliefs. And so now, as you sit here and watch this happen, there is this pagan king who is coming in and he's ransacking not just Jerusalem, but the temple itself and taking things out of the temple that are reserved for worship of God and putting them in his own temples, okay? That's just got to be like a horrifying moment for these folks. And Nebuchadnezzar is just like, he's not only beating them down, as he invades them, but he's also saying your God is weak. Like he is very intentionally going into this space where he knows that they do their God stuff and he's taking it away from them and using it in his own temple. So horrible moment as they're being ransacked and relocated. They're being relocated. The stuff is being relocated. As we're going to see here in a minute, some of the people are being relocated. What's he do next? The king, then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, 
both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths, probably guys that were 14, 15, 16-year-olds, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding and learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. And they were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. So you remember on the first night, uh, I read that quote that said, every empire tries to capture the imagination of the people that it's trying to rule. Remember? Well, that's exactly what Nebuchadnezzar is doing here. He's trying to capture the imagination of the, of the young leaders, future leaders from Israel. And so he goes up very purposely after like good-looking kids, kids that are smart, kids that have shown that they have aptitude to stand in front of other people and be leaders. They're good thinkers. Like he says, go find the best and the brightest of what they have. And we're going to give them a three-year scholarship. And we're going to completely immerse them in our ways, in the ways of, of Babylonian math, Babylonian magic, Babylonian art, Babylonian astronomy, Babylonian medicine, law. We're going to educate them on the history of our people. Because, well, let me ask you this. Why would he do that? Why would you want to do that? If you're going to go in and ransack a community and you're planning on taking it over, man, your hand went up fast. Like you already, you were ready for this. Like you saw a Bible project video on this or something already. <laughs> why would you do it? What's your name? Luther. Luther. Why, why would you do that, Luther, if you were going to take over a group of people? Bingo. Good job, Luther. So that they will get to know your religion and they will become your people. If I can get you to think like a Babylonian, I can get you to act like a Babylonian. And if you're somebody who understands our ways and you become our people, that was so good, Luther, you become like us, you can help teach all the rest of the Jews that we're grabbing a hold of here to become just like us. We're going to capture their imagination. It's actually brilliant. It's a great strategy if you have any plans to go in and take over a community right? Even today, it's a great idea. <clears throat> so let's just hit pause here right now, because right now, just in this very moment, again, we're thinking about God-fearing people that are being snatched up in this moment, sharp God-fearing people. And they're going to make a decision at this point. And you can imagine that some of them are going to decide, and just think about this, some are going to go the way of accommodation. They're going to be assimilated into the culture. They're just going to go along with the fact that they're being taken over. They've been given this three-year scholarship. It's a good education. They're getting to eat the king's meals. And guess what? Maybe God isn't actually who he said he was. Like at this point, maybe some people are starting to deconstruct their faith because they saw what just happened in the temple, and it doesn't look like God's coming back in there anytime soon. And so now, why not just go along with, with what they're offering us? And they start to just assimilate and just get sucked right up in everything that's being offered to them. And they can't make any difference at all in the culture for their God because they look just like the culture, just like Luther said the plan was. They just get accommodated into it. That's one option. Another group maybe just went the way of isolation. Maybe they've decided, you know what, we're just going to get into our own 
holy huddle over here, and we're going to snuggle up with each other, and we're going to completely reject everything about this, and we're going to separate ourselves for us, and we're going to make everything that we do super spiritual, and everything that goes out there is just evil, and we're going to separate ourselves from it. And see, they don't wind up having any impact on the culture around them. They don't end up standing for God in any kind of significant way because all they do is talk to themselves. They have actually no connection to anything that's going on in this culture. And see, both of those options have real dangers to them, don't they? I mean, I know even just coming into our times, I know, I was thinking about this even before I came in here, I had a, a female friend of mine in Amy's who had called me and told me that she was going to go do a P, into a PhD program at Michigan State. And we've known this woman for a long time. She's like a legend in our ministry, had huge impact in people's lives, like a great leader. She's actually the very kind of person that Nebuchadnezzar would have been looking for to bring into his, into his scholarship program. And this was just a few years ago. And she called me, and I had already done PhD work, and she, that's, she called me and just asked me to, for some input on how to go about doing this. And so I gave her whatever I had in terms of hoops to jump through. And the last thing I said to her was, Meg, protect your heart and mind and anchor yourself to the word of God while you go to do this because this is very dangerous work to do. And they are going to try to do everything they can because I've just done this to encourage you. Remember we said this yesterday, to erase all the lines that God has drawn around your life about gender, about sexuality, about the way you view the world and what's important. They're going to try to take that away from you and have you replace it with their godless, pagan way of doing life. I had this conversation with her. She said, okay, I'm good. Well, and again, just because of the mix of crowd, let me just say this. She just graduated a couple years ago, and she's made some relational choices and some decisions that would indicate that she has completely walked away from the faith. Okay? And I called her, and I said, Meg, what happened? I mean, I thought we had this exact, I told you very specifically to not go down that road. What's happened? And she said, I just started to hear some things that caused me to rethink what I've always believed. Okay? Which is exactly what Luther just said would be the goal of a secular, a secular environment where they're trying to get you to leave things behind so that you'll become like them. She got accommodated. I've been in a Christian school system, and just go here with me for a second. I've been in a Christian school system where a couple of our kids have been in a Christian school. We've got kids in a public school, kids in Christian school. We've tried homeschooling. That didn't work. That almost broke up our marriage, um, almost burned our house down. Uh, we got a kid in a STEM school, so we're like uh, school schizophrenics, okay? Like, you don't want to have the school choice conversation with us because we're a mess, and we've done it all. Well, in the Christian school setting, I taught a class there. I was an assistant coach, so I kind of immersed myself in this Christian school setting. And the school itself prides itself on training uh, students who are going to go out and make a difference in the world. The only problem with that is the way they talk to the students is to make everything outside of these doors evil and to make only what we're doing inside of here is where all the righteousness in the community lives. And everything that goes on out there is wrong and dark and broken and evil. And I'm not exaggerating. There's no discussions ever 
about how to go and actually encounter or engage people that are outside these walls. We're basically training them to stay here with each other. Even though our brochures are full of promises that they're going to become world changers. They become isolated, even though we keep telling ourselves they're going to make a difference. You with me? Both of those options wind up not allowing us to have an impact on the culture. They, both of those options. Daniel is going to show us what obedient involvement looks like. And I think, I know there's other conversations to be had, and maybe we can talk about this afterward, because I'm not saying those are all bad, but obedient involvement is what we should be striving after. I think that's part of the reason why God leaves us with Daniel's story. All right, so let's just keep going. Those are two options. So if all that wasn't bad enough, they've been ransacked and relocated. They're being reeducated, and now they're being renamed. So look at this. Uh, where are we at here? Verse 6. Yeah, thank you. I can't see. Among these, so now we're going we're gonna to get introduced to who our central characters are. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. Now, we might not think this is any big deal, but let's, let's catch this. Daniel's name means God is my judge. He gets his name changed to Belteshazzar, which means may Bel protect his life. Bel was an Egyptian god. Hananiah's name means the Lord shows grace. He's going to become Shadrach, command of Aku, the moon god. Mishael, who is what God is. He gets his name changed to Meshach, who is what Aku is. Azariah's name means the Lord helps. See, all these guys, they have names that actually mean something, that are tied to their relationship to their God. And, and Nebuchadnezzar, again, he's sharp. He's going to strip them even of their names so that they won't be reminded of him. His name is changed to Abednego, servant of Nabu, the sun god. So he's stripping them completely down. And it just seems like it can't get any worse. Okay, so what happens? A decision gets made. Here's where there's a turning point in the story. It says, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Now, this is interesting. So Daniel says, it says he resolved. He, he had a conviction. He, he decided that he was going to draw a line right here on the food thing, which I think is super interesting because it seems like maybe... Maybe there would have been some opportunities to draw a line way before this, right? It could have been at the name change spot, or it could have been some rejection of the education that we talked about, or, you know, he could have been fighting back in some way as they were stripping the temple of its stuff. Like, there's a whole bunch of spots where lines could have gotten drawn. Daniel draws a line on the food. Now, why is that? Why would Daniel draw a line in saying that he was not going to defile himself with the king's food? That seems like it's the the least of the problems at this point. Who knows? There's a couple reasons. Somebody know one of them? Go ahead. 
Okay, and when you, that's good. And when you say breaking the law, you mean Jewish law, right? That's good. Yeah, there's, there's, it doesn't say anything in Jewish law that your name can't be changed to a foreign god, although I think that's still probably bad. But it does say that, say that you can't eat certain foods that would make you ceremonially, ceremonially unclean. And we don't need to get into everything that that would mean, but they had all kinds of rules and regulations when it came to food that was part of their worship experience. So that's one reason, and that would be good enough, but it's actually something that's even worse that's going on with this Babylonian food. Dude, you already had one good answer. Let's see if you can, can you get both of them? What's your name? Arthur. Arthur, you and Luther need to hang out. Yes. It's being offered ahead of time to Babylonian gods. So not only is it defiling because it goes against Jewish dietary laws, but it is also being lifted up and prayed over to Babylonian gods. And Daniel says, no, I, I'm stopping right there. I'm not doing that. So here's an interesting question, again, just for us in all these different seasons of life that we're in. Like, do you have any lines drawn? And where are they going to be drawn? So obviously, obviously what the Bible is telling us and what Daniel is showing us is that we should have some lines drawn somewhere. And I have a great time when I'm talking to college students about this because they're still trying to figure their lives out, right? You're still trying to figure out, like, what's going on and what am I going to be, what am I not going to be? And, and, you know, you're getting input from different directions about that. And so it's a great time to start making some decisions about where your lines are going to be for your life. But it never fully goes away our need to keep evaluating where we're drawing lines of conviction around our life, what we're going to let in, what we're not going to let in, what we're going to do with our money, what we're not going to do with our money, what we're going to do with our vocational time, what we're not going to do with our vocational time. It never fully goes away. How we're going to raise our families, what we're going to do with the grandkids and what our influence is going to be on them. We're constantly being asked to reevaluate where our own personal lines are drawn. Do you have any? And what I'm realizing, Charlie, you got me even thinking about this after last night. I'm not sure there's like this, this book that just tells us this is exactly where every line should be drawn in every circumstance in every one of our lives. Because God puts us in different circumstances that are going to d- demand that we walk with him. That we get up every day and we say, Holy Spirit, empower me to live in what you say is true about me, but also to know what I should do and what I should not do in these circumstances and among these people that I find myself with right now. That's just called walking with God, right? And I think we need to be careful about that because maybe sometimes we even come from sort of legalistic backgrounds that have already determined where all the lines are for us. And maybe God wants to do something very different with us in different circumstances. So I'll just leave that at that. But we need to have some lines. And, and here's what I love about what, what Daniel does. Let's keep reading here. Because he draws a line, but he does it in a certain kind of way. It says, therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. So he's saying, Daniel asks him, can I not eat this food because I don't want to defile myself? And the guy that's over him says, you're going to get me killed. 
Because my assignment is to make sure you eat in such a way that you get built up and you become plump as a human being. That's, that's a horrible, horrible imagery. But you're supposed to grow, okay? And if you don't, it's going to be my head. That's the way things work. Then Daniel said, verse 11, to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, most versions say, please test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. And then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. Okay? So there's two things that stand out to me in this about how he approaches this thing. One, he's honest with the steward about why it is that he doesn't want to do this. You get that? I mean, he very specifically says to him, can I not eat this food? I don't want to defile myself with the king's food. You got to think, that's kind of a gutsy thing to say. I mean, he could have come up with a whole bunch of other ways to kind of cover over the whole, your, your king's food will defile me because I follow God in a certain kind of way. He could have just said, like, I'm on the keto diet. And so I'm doing something different right now dietarily, and I'm just not going to be good for me. Or maybe, you know, I'm trying to do something different with my carbs right now or whatever. He could have just covered it over and not been honest. And I think of all the situations where we might find ourselves in, where there's a moment where we have an opportunity to make a declaration about a line that's drawn in our life. Because we follow the God of the Bible and how easy it is maybe to cover that over and lie about it, or we, you know, we don't want to look foolish in front of a friend or a coworker or a roommate or whatever. And so we say, again, this happens with college students all the time. I know college students that'll, you know, make a decision that they're no longer going to go to bars or something, right? They're going to cut out the partying scene. And then when friends are asking them to go to the parties, you know, what they say is, well, I got to stay home and study or I'm going home this weekend, right? You come up with some other reason other than to say, you know what, I made a decision to follow the God of the Bible and I'm just starting to clean that stuff out of my life. That's a different response, isn't it? The second thing that he does though is he does it with humility. He says, please, will you consider doing this for us? And that may seem like a small thing, but it really shouldn't these days. Because he could have, he could have been really obstinate, he could have been a jerk towards him, you know, he could have organized guys and gone and, and you know, protested outside the palace. Uh, God hates meat eaters or something like that, right? He could have done something like that that would have made more, maybe more of a scene and more of a ruckus. He could have just been mean about it. But he's respectful and humble about it. And again, I just think to myself of the time that I live in amongst my brothers and sisters, and I just want to say, how have we given ourselves permission to be so mean, in the name of God. Like that, it shouldn't be like that. Yeah, you draw lines, but then that doesn't give you permission to be a jerk towards people. It doesn't give you permission then to, to be just because this person doesn't believe in God that I can be um, disrespectful to them. I remember man, back in my Kent State days, there was this guy named Brother Jed who used to come to campus. Some of you might be old enough and have been on campuses before where Brother Jed used to show up because he used to tour around the country, I think. And, uh, man, it got to a point where I used to go to Wendy's and I'd get a burger and just sit in the plaza whenever he was there because it was going to be a show. And what Brother Jed would do, and he would have followers that were there with him, he would stand in the courtyard 
And guys would stand there with Bibles and they would scream at students as they walked by and tell them they were going to hell, call them whoremongers, would just call them, call them a bunch of other names. I'm not going to tell you all the names they called them with mixed audience here. Um, but it was like really like mean stuff. And part of the reason why I wanted to watch it, and I'm not exactly proud of this, but I'm just telling you I did it when I was in college, okay? Part of what I was waiting for, because this would always happen, is that eventually he would say it to the wrong guy. And eventually, Brother Jed and his suitcase would wind up in the plaza fountain. And until I had a picture for the longest time, because there was a picture on the cover of the newspaper at Kent State of Brother Jed pulling his stuff out of the fountain. And what he would always say, and all his people would say, because they were kind of waiting for it too, is I'm being persecuted for my faith. Now they're standing on this, they've got this persecution thing going. And I can remember even as a fairly new Christian watching that and saying, dude, you are getting thrown in the plaza fountain for being a jerk. That's it. That's, this is not about your faith. This is about being disrespectful in the name of Jesus. And you're actually getting the right response from these folks. You sure as heck are not having any real impact on their soul or their mind. In fact, if anything, it's probably really negative right now. So, small thing. But Daniel says, please, could we try this? <laughs> I think it's worth grabbing onto in the times that we live in. And what does the guy say? He says, yes, okay, we'll do it. We will do it. And what ends up happening? It says he listened to him in this matter. And I just think about that guy, what a great moment it was even for him to give in to this. And he tested them for 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink, and he gave them vegetables. Okay? Went along with the plan, and this is what happened. So let's just read the rest of it, and then we'll talk about the results that were, were produced from it. It says, as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill and all the literature and wisdom. So he helped them to think well about what they were learning and do it from a biblical worldview. It says Daniel had understanding and visions and dreams. And at the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. He interacted with them. And it says that among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. So he stayed in this position for at least the next 70 years. Okay? So, what are some of the results that came out of this? A few things I think are just, again, worth thinking about as we think about what does it mean for us to walk with God in the culture that we live in. And one of the results that came out of Daniel making this decision is that God moved. He gave God a chance to show up. And here's what's interesting, and Art, Art showed this to us right away. If you can follow along in your Bible, don't miss the order of what happens. Look in verse 2. It says, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. The Lord set this thing in motion. Then in verse 8, Daniel resolved. He made a decision in light of what was happening. Then in verse 9, it says, God gave Daniel favor. 
Then in verse 11, Daniel said to the steward. Then in verse 17, God gave them learning. You see what's happening? Don't miss this. God sets this thing in motion. God was always the one who was behind it. Nebuchadnezzar thinks he's getting stewards and, and smart kids to come serve in his kingdom, but he doesn't know that God is just setting up a scenario where his own kingdom is going to be advanced. He starts it, but Daniel keeps responding. Daniel resolves, God, God gives him favor. Daniel comes up with the plan, God gives him favor. And all the way, it's, all the while, it's like Daniel is the one that just by responding, all, any of these other people could have responded too. But because Daniel saw what was going on and he resolved in his heart to do a certain thing, it gave God room to work with him. And I love that. I love, and again, Art said something like this, but what, part of what this does even as a side note for me is it causes me not to get too worried about headlines, about world affairs, and I told you, I'm a culture guy. I love studying and paying attention to what's going on. I like watching what's happening politically. I like the discussions. And, you know, it looks pretty miserable most of the time, doesn't it? Like in what stage of any of your lives across all the decades that are represented here did you ever look out and say, hey, I feel really good about what's going on politically in this culture for more than maybe a couple months at a time, right? Maybe there were some seasons where you felt good about it. But, you know, as you look at world headlines, it's usually pretty dire in the time that we live in. And reading and, and being reminded of, of this situation with Daniel just says, God's doing stuff. He, he's setting things in motion. He's allowing evil things to take place. He's allowing it for whatever reason right now to take place. All that remains to be seen is which of his people will stand up and resolve to draw some lines, to be their man, to be their woman in the situation that he's placed them in to represent him so that he can get more done. I love that, that he moves. The other thing that jumps out at me is just how the, the friends are encouraged. His friends are encouraged. So what you see in this text is Daniel is the one that resolves, but you see these other three guys are kind of going along for the ride with him, aren't they? I don't know who else was in on it. The Bible doesn't say anybody else was. It seems like Daniel made this decision. He must have talked about it with these three guys, and they said, we're in on it with you. Let's go. And God blesses them because of it. You know what happens in chapter 3? Daniel disappears for a second, and now all you've got is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And now they're being challenged to bow down in another way to Nebuchadnezzar. Remember the story? But when, when the different musical instruments are played at certain times during the day, they're supposed to turn to, to bow down and pray to them. And they say, yeah, we're not doing that. That's where we draw our line. We're not going to be a part of that. And they want to throw them in the lion's den. Remember? And what do they say? You remember, it's one of the great lines. It's like totally a Hollywood movie line in the Bible. What do they say to them? Somebody flip over and look in chapter 3 and see what he, they say to him. It's a pretty good moment. We weren't going to teach on it, but you ought to know this. I just said it was a great movie. Luther. Luther. <laughs> nice and loud. Luther, what's their response when they say, hey, we're going to kill you if you don't do this? 
basically says our God can and will save. But they also say, but even if he doesn't, we ain't bowing down to you. Now, yeah, I don't know anything about these three guys. All I know is two chapters earlier, it was Daniel that took the stand. And now all of a sudden, because of Daniel's faith, the people that were watching him, the people that were closest to him, suddenly they've got a whole nother level of confidence and faith themselves. They saw God show up around this scenario. This next one is way worse. We're going to kill you. And they say, yeah, that's okay. We're not doing that. And what happened there? God delivered them too. But even if he hadn't, and again, there's been other situations in the Bible where guys took a stand. John the Baptist took a stand too, and what happened to him? Yeah, he got his head cut off. Sometimes you get pulled out of the fire. Sometimes you get your head cut off. But at the end of the day, will you draw a line and say, God, I'm trusting you to deliver me in either, in either way. I want to be with you. And in doing that, what happens to the people that are watching? They get courage to stand up. And then finally, the culture is challenged. These guys become the best. They are in the king's inner circle. And they get to influence the way he does business in the community. Okay? Don't, don't underestimate that. So, again, there's a part of me, I'm going to know we're all over the place here. But why not be the best student? Why not be the best at whatever it is that God has given you to do? Even in your retirement, it, be the best at being in relationship with the people that you're around. Represent a kingdom worldview with the people that you get to hang out with so that people look at you and just say, there's something different about those people and the way they think. Influence the people that are around you. I think Daniel leaves that for us in such a, a beautiful way. Now, I wrote this to myself earlier today, that unless you're a missionary that's called to some foreign land, you're called to be a missionary in this land. <laughs> like, that's just sort of built in to the whole Great Commission thing. And, and Jesus saying, y'all will stay here now until I come back and I want you to be my hands and feet wherever you're at. That's a big part of the reason why I'm leaving you here and I allow you to stay alive. It's because I want you to get up every day, start your day by inviting me back into, into your consciousness, start with gratitude like we talked the other day, and then just ask God, how do you want to show up in my life today as I go about my business and the things that you've given me to do? In the classroom, in the store, at work, with people we're meeting with, how do you want to use me so that you're put on display? I'm going to stop right there. I'm going to stop right there. Actually, no, I'm not going to tell you one more story. <laughs> Just got one more story. Because this, I, was, I hadn't thought about this in a long time, but because I'm with Eric Thomas, it just, it just came back to me um, in my own life. Because, like, when you will do that, when you will draw some lines and you will stand up for God in scenarios, always he will show up and do something positive for you. I, I will say that. Always. It may not be that you don't get rejected. It may not be that the immediate result looks the way you want it to look, but he will always do something with it for his purposes, and you will get more confidence to trust him the next time. So he, Eric and I were playing in this flag football league um, back in the 90s, like, and it was this high-level flag football league. I know that sounds kind of geeky, but 
It was like a bunch of former Division I athletes. It was in Chicago. And I didn't even realize how good this was going to be when I showed up. But it was like big dudes and like, like, Eric, what is this? And he was like, no, you're going to love it. Come on. I'm like, I'm a little scared because I'm a basketball guy, okay? I don't even play football. So I get on this team, and these guys are serious. They're like former Big Ten players and everything, and, and it's like this hostile league. Lots of cussing, lots of craziness, lots of blood after games. It's like, oh, okay. And uh, I'm doing the best I can. And Eric and I are actually doing pretty well on this team. And somehow it came up um, at some point in time. And again, you just you don't, never know kind of what conversations are going to happen. But they were always asking us about what we do. And we were in seminary together. I didn't tell you that. We, we were like in Jesus school as grown men. And these guys are all businessmen, and they're like, they're like wealthy guys. So, like, again, they're like really successful, and me and Eric are in Jesus school. And I'm not married, and I'm in Jesus school, and I'm in my late 20s. And so they're just like, you can tell they just feel like we're weird guys. Uh, but we're good on the team, so they're not sure what to do with us because they kind of want to be able to make fun of us, but it's like they're actually pretty good athletes. Like, what is going on with these guys? So somehow it came up one day with the quarterback, who was this just strikingly good-looking guy who had actually played, oh my gosh, I'm going to give you two Michigan State stories. He played football at Michigan State. And somehow it came up on the sideline about our relationships. And, uh, and somehow we were talking about uh, girlfriends and whatnot. And I ended up saying, again, I, have, I don't remember what triggered this because it's not the normal thing that you talk about on a football sideline. But I ended up saying that I was committed to not having sex until I got married. And I had made some bad choices in high school. And I told him that. And that was like 13, 14 years ago. And, man, I'm on this path now where I'm, I'm looking for a woman to marry. And I want to be sexually pure until that day. And I remember him standing there and looking at me. And he said, so, like, you're not going to have sex until you get married? I was like, No. And he said, why not? And I said, because I don't think God wants me to. And again, we're grown men standing on this football sideline. <laughs> and I said, I just don't think God wants me to do because that's not his plan for, you know, how sex works. And I really believe that. And I see how it goes bad. And he's like, really? So not at all. Like, you're not going to do anything. And he went out for a play or, you know, another series. And then he came back and he just kept peppering me with questions about it. It was like getting to be embarrassing. So we lay that to rest. Uh, and like a week later, we all went out after the game, and he brought it back up to me. We were all sitting at this restaurant, and he brought it back up to me, and he was like, tell me, tell me more about this whole God doesn't want you to have sex till you get married thing. He's like, I've never even heard of that before. And this is what happened, you guys. For the next three hours, Eric and I sat back to back as guys were coming up to sit around us to talk about why we go to Jesus school. And they wanted to talk to us just about more about life. And they wanted to talk about sex and relationships. And they wanted to talk about purpose in life. One guy had just had situations where somebody had died in, in his life and he was really busted up about it and he wanted to talk to us about death. And I mean, for this night, we were at this sports bar and we were literally back to back, just holding court, talking to people about God amongst this pagan group of flag football players in Chicago. And it was the greatest, like still one of the greatest moments where I feel like 
just by, by standing on an uncomfortable truth, okay? Because I could have said a million, could have made a million different excuses for why I was going down that path. But just by saying, no, I think this is what God wants, it opened up the door for us to be the Jesus guys. And they were coming to us, okay? So again, I'm saying that because there's a wide range of people in here. So especially y'all young people, like, don't be afraid. Or in the midst of your fear, I shouldn't even say that, in the midst of feeling fear, take the step and see what God does. Because people are desperate for somebody that's actually got lines drawn around their life and who knows why they're there. Because I believe in a God that put them there, okay? She'll get that at some point, even though she's not really listening right now. (laughs) All right, that is the last story. Anything you want to say? Anything right now? I know it's 8.15. Is there any smoke coming out of anybody's ears? Is anybody upset that I... Like dogged on Christian schools or something? Are you gonna, is it going to mess up your Thursday if you don't get to say it right now to me? Or anything else? Mom camp? What, are you sitting on anything back there? Are you good? Might be a Christian school teacher back there. I don't know. All right, homeschools. We did homeschool. Failed experiment. Failed experiment in the Uzinski home. Totally believe in the idea of it, but not at our house. All right. Hey, think of questions maybe you want to ask Eric and I. We can talk to him about what's going on with the high schoolers. He's a big culture guy. We talk a ton about church together. So think about your questions, and uh, we'll have a lot of good interaction tomorrow night. Okay. All right. You want to come up and, and pray for us? Yes. Close us out. Thanks for staying engaged, everybody.